Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 97.1 FM Talk. On Demand Audio. John Morawski is back with us from Real Clear Investigations this afternoon. John, what's your wake-up time? Do you get up early? Um, yeah, I get up early sometimes. Do you? I except, like except when I don't. I do not like getting up early. And, like, to me, anything before 730 is kind of early. So we'll see how I, how I go with that. Look, I, I apologize first and foremost for yesterday because I wanted to have you on, but we had all this stuff in Kansas City, which was, you know, just awful. But you, you wrote a piece, and I want you to introduce the audience to this lovely woman named Arlene Geronimus. And I love the picture that's in the piece here. And, and this plays into a lot of the woke ideology stuff that I've talked about before, and certainly you and I have talked about. But this is an interesting lesson in how some of this stuff kind of spreads like COVID, right? Yeah, it's uh, uh, Arlene Geronimus is a public health researcher. And back in the 80s, she started, develop, she started noticing uh, there was a lot of there was this uh, outcry back in the 80s about this ghetto pathology of black people, black kids, basically teenagers having children. Uh, so um, I believe Jesse Jackson called it babies having babies. Right. And she started doing research and she came up with this counterintuitive insight that the reason um, inner city uh, black kids um, were having kids so young is because people have kids in the optimal age of health. Uh, that's when they typically, and for the middle class, that's in your 20s. Uh, because that's when your health peaks, right? You're in your 20s, even in your early 30s. For uh, black people living in ghettos, it was much earlier because they start aging much faster. They could see that uh, their aunts and their sisters and their mothers, the people around them were aging faster, getting sick. And so it's almost like an instinct to have babies younger. And they were having babies in, in adolescence. It was, a, it, was a, it was a sort of intuitive but rational decision. And it wasn't basically a pathology, but it was a survival mechanism. It was an adaptation. Uh, and that's how her uh, theory developed. And then she noticed that black women, even in the middle class, when they were upper middle class and they were upwardly mobile, they still uh, deteriorated. Their health deteriorated uh, much earlier than white women in the middle class. And so she expanded the theory and she came up with this idea of weathering. Weathering is just another word for premature aging and premature death. And she ultimately came up with a theory that it's basically being a minority in a white dominant society it is so stressful for black people. It is essentially like being chased by a cheetah and facing uh, being basically mauled to death every day. Uh, that's how difficult it is. She uses that cheetah analogy all the time. Very common analogy for her that. And so, you know, and 
I wanted to, I was thinking about this and I wanted to just sort of give readers an idea. Like why do people, why are people, this theory is totally dystopian, but why are people attracted to it? What, what makes people like this theory? And we should point out too, John, that you, you know, this goes back to like the mid eighties and it didn't get a lot of attention, but then it started getting traction later, right? She was actually criticized by, um, uh, public health groups and by, I forget the name, but they were like prominent nonprofits were criticizing her for excusing uh, irresponsibility. And she was saying, it's not irresponsibility. You're applying white middle class values to people living in completely different circumstances. And they're living under environmental and cultural constraints that make it uh, rational for them to have children earlier. So uh, and she was saying it's not normal for people to have babies. You know, when you when it's when you have babies at the age at which you have children depends on the culture. And she, to some degree, from anthropology, we know that she's right. In a lot of you know pre-industrial cultures, you achieve uh, you attain adulthood at age 13, and you start having babies. You know, 14, 15, 16. That's that's not you know uh, in the prairies, in uh, you know in small villages, and you know in societies that are pre-industrial, um, people do have babies much younger, and they die when they're 35. Right. So everything is sped up. And so she's saying that for these kids living in these urban inner city ghettos, everything is just sped up. And so they have to move faster to get to achieve their optimal health. And so it but she was criticized uh, prof- profoundly. She was really uh, kind of retreated into her research. She it was she was really kind of shocked by how much criticism she got. But over time, the more audacious her theory became, the more radical it became, the more fashionable it became. So the, so. You know, at the early stages, a theory seems to make a kind of sense. But, you know, at this point, her theory is that uh, that being black in a white society is to face uh, cultural oppression, microaggressions, existential threats, identity management, uh, code switching. She uses a lot of these ac- academic yeah, words. And she calls like she, she even describes American society. You write about this as an onslaught of microaggressions, othering, existential insults, daily indignities, voice erasure. I mean, she even kind of makes this seem and she estimates that racism and weathering has caused 2.7 million excess black deaths in the U.S. between 1970 and 2004, basically calling that genocidal. Well, she doesn't use the word genocidal, but I'm pointing out that it is of genocidal proportions to use those kinds of numbers. Um, she also had a paper in 2015 where she uh, she and her co-authors described American society as, quote, the surround, unquote, meaning that it is surrounds people with oppressive forces and constantly barrages them with messaging and subliminal messaging about how to conform to certain ideas to which they can never conform, sets them up to, for failure and makes them feel terrible all day long. And these messages are called the phantasms. So it's almost like a science fiction script. So these phantasms are con- like photon torpedoes that are constantly being fired at people, constantly sending in messages of worthlessness and inadequacy all day long, nonstop, until they br- it breaks down. And, and the stress that it causes, it's the stress that it causes that then makes sure that causes cellular damage to your body. That's what causes the premature aging. It's actually cellular damage. So it's a kind of bodily onslaught, right? right? It's essentially kind of subliminal lynching. And this is one of my favorite little excerpts here. She says, exercise can be beneficial, but a black person considering taking a run will be unlikely to forget that Ahmaud Arbery was shot to death while jogging because he was black. 
you know, referencing what happened in Georgia. And how can a black person relax into restorative sleep knowing Breonna Taylor was shot to death by police as she slept in her own apartment? So this goes on and on and on. And as you point out, like the New York Times called this person an icon. Where is she right now? Is she at the University of Michigan? Yeah, she's at the University of Michigan. She's a superstar, you know, academic uh, in public health, widely known. Um, and, she, you know, she's published over 130 papers and um, she got a lot of favorable coverage in, you know, National Public Radio, uh, The Guardian, of The course. New York Times. Yeah. Um, you know, she's treated these these theories are treated very uncritically. Um, they're accepted as almost like gospel. And, you know, and the reason I think people like these theories um, is um, we can all think of a time when we were in school on the blacktop and we were excluded from an activity and other kids made fun of us or even bullied us. And th- that feeling that just washes over you, like your neck gets hot, your ears get hot. You feel uh, that feeling of awfulness, just torture. You can't you just want to run home and hide. And so we remember having moments like that. And she's saying that for a, an African-American, it's like that dawn to dusk. And then they can't even sleep at night because they're just having nightmares about uh, somebody being killed. Um, and, you know, there probably are black people who live in a state of panic because they're constantly exposed to disinformation. I mean, they believe that there are thousands of police shootings a year. You know, they get yeah, very they're lied to about all these things. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't realize that these are very small numbers. Well, but the other thing that happens here is this, this kind of manifests itself. And, in, in, you know, I sit back sometimes and I play this audio. Maybe this is even something you and I have talked about. You got the white coat ceremonies. I remember playing audio from the University of Minnesota where they all gather before they become doctors, these med students, and they have to ba- basically swear a woke Pledge of Allegiance about this. And that's where a lot of this comes from, all this research that took place in the 80s, it seems. Yeah, you know, it started in the 80s, and she wasn't the only one. She's just an example of this kind of, uh, of, of, of research and the trajectory it took and how long. And at the time, at first, um, people were just very dismissive of it, and they ridiculed it. And now it is the established knowledge. It is the established truth of academia, right? There is when she writes her papers and she writes about uh, premature, you know, short uh, life expectancies or chronic diseases, um, she um, never considers, and none of her co- colleagues or anybody doing this kind of research, never considers alternative explanations. The, expl- yeah. the uh, understanding is that it's always caused by systemic racism uh, and the white supremacist yeah. uh, oppressive culture in which people live. So you can only look at the, the, the sort of the answer to the question is predetermined. Um, and so, and there's, you know, hundreds of these studies. Get more at 971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.